When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How's it going? Hope everyone's having a great day. It's Jay Scott from The Hook, your ultimate rock community podcast. We have another edition of the new music spotlight with the band Cold Stairs from Nashville, Tennessee. We have Chris Tapp on the line. How are you doing today, Chris? Hey, Jay. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I, uh, I appreciate you doing this. I've been checking out your music here for the past couple of months, and it has just been... It's been a journey. I love the stuff, love the music, love everything about you guys. Thank you, man. Appreciate that. So as we do with every guest, the first time they appear on the podcast, we always ask them the same first question, and that is the essence of the show, pretty much what we're all about. And just like every rock song that has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a band, a performance, an album, or a song, that hooked them on rock and roll. What hooked you? Uh, it was Black Dog. Um, I had a, uh, I was probably five or six years old. My godparents lived behind us, uh, had a home behind us that was kind of, had they had kids that were in their late teens, early 20s, and uh, I went back there and, uh, their their record selection had been passed down from the oldest kid down to the youngest. And I think Brian was probably 18 or 19. And I, I used to love to go in his room because he had Bruce Lee, Ted Nugent, Jimi Hendrix on the wall posters and stuff. And I just go in there and stare at them. They look like, you know, comic book heroes or something and craziness. But anyway, uh, I went in there one day and he, I was looking at the Zeppelin record and he put it on and, the beginning, you know, the, the backward sound and stuff. And then black dog took off. And I, I just, uh, I could even at that age, I was like, what is, what is the power, you know, behind that? That's like some crazy energy, you know? So I was, I was hooked right there, right then. And where did it go from there? You know, you heard black dog, Led Zeppelin. At some point you decided to pick up an instrument. What made you, or who was it that made you want to play music? I was already I was already playing uh, piano at that point. I started playing piano whenever I was uh, five. I was sitting in front of the television with my granddad, and uh, there was a uh, television show that had Jerry Lee Lewis and Jimmy Swaggart, and both of them were playing piano. And uh, Jerry Lee got up there and kind of went off on piano. And my granddad told me, and I, I can remember it like it was yesterday, even as as young as I was, but he. He said, if you learn to play piano, you know, you can, 
you can get any woman that you want and you'll be successful and whatever else. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. So I was, <laughs> sign me up for piano lessons. So I took piano, uh, from the time I was five until I was about 12. Um, and I can remember being seven or eight and doing piano lessons and coming in and, you know, want to learn the intro to no quarter or want to learn, you know, these rock songs, even whenever I was uh, little, I think at the time, you know, I can't remember what was on the radio back then. It was right before, you know, pre Nirvana and all that stuff. So it was pop stuff, but I was still listening to old stuff even whenever I was that little, but whenever I turned about 13, I figured uh, I was playing in a in a band that couldn't play guitar, and the guitar player didn't kind of know what he was doing, and so I, I took it up then. And it seemed like a a good move to make at that point. Who are your influences on guitar? Um, they've always kind of been the same. Uh, you know, I, I, Jimmy Page is the guy for me. Um, I really enjoy and, and love all the early Delta Blues players. I love the um, the realness of the playing. You know, it's the the um, just it, it, the early players didn't seem to be so concentrated on perfection, and it seemed to be more on um, soul and and just really, you know, the instrument was a tool to kind of check this stuff. And uh, so, I, I liked a lot of the early blues players, but. Um, up through the seventies, all the guitar players through then, you know, I, I love Jerry Page. I love Clapton. Um, but Jimmy Page was really the guy for me that I, that I really aspired to be like, I liked that he was kind of reckless and, uh, you know, again, wasn't perfect. Uh, it, whenever I was around 14 or 15, I had a good friend of mine that was playing guitar and he immediately just kind of took off. And he was playing, you know, Ingve, and I don't know what all out was out back then, but he got really good at that. And I and I thought about it, and I just thought, well, you know what? I'm I'm never going to catch up to him on this stuff. I really need to figure out a way to be my own guitar player. So I intentionally did practice the things that he did. And if I picked up the guitar, I was always writing. I was always trying to write riffs and write songs, and that. I didn't really practice. I, I, probably the first 15 years I played guitar, I didn't practice. The only thing I did, if I picked up the guitar, I was trying to construct some kind of song using the guitar. And by doing that, uh, I think it really helped me figure out a style and figure out a thing that was unique to me. Yeah, the thing about Paige is, like you said, you know, he's he is reckless. You know, there are people that call him sloppy. But I don't know if there's another guitar player that embodies rock and roll and all the scars and the bruises that rock and roll is about, you know, the rebellion, the recklessness. I don't know if there's another guitar player yeah. that, you know, embodies that sound like Jimmy Page does. Hendrix, yeah. yeah. That's what I like about both those guys. I mean, those two guys look like that if you invited them over for dinner, they would, you know, not knock on the door and kind of walk in, just grab, grab a beer out of your refrigerator and sit back in the chair, and, you know, yeah, absolutely. Start telling jokes and just, you think about inviting, you know, Paul Gilbert over or some of these guys that are super shredders. And I, and I total respect for those guys doing a completely different thing, but they seem very 
polite and nice. And I was always, I was always a big uh, lover of punk rock and, and kind of things that were a little darker that, that had some meanness to them. And I guess I gravitate towards those guitar players for that reason. They do seem, it should be dangerous. If it's rock and roll, it should be, it should be a little mean and it should be a little dangerous at times. Yeah, it should be a little sloppy. It should be a little reckless. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? It's 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 the music that is the middle finger of all music, right? So yeah, you know why exactly. not why not be a little reckless? Yeah. You mentioned that you were always constructing songs and in in writing music. Was there an artist? Was there a song that you heard that said, "Hey, you know, I want to write lyrics. I want to write songs like this." This really moved me. Was there was there a moment like that for you? Yeah, there was a couple. Um, there's been a couple in my life, um, but I think early on I had uh, King of the Delta Blues singers, the Robert Johnson record, and right, you know, I don't remember how old I was when that Crossroads movie came out, but I remember seeing it whenever I was a little kid, and I was fascinated with Robert Johnson and just kind of the whole uh, religious elements to that as well, and. The lyrics, I just couldn't believe how good the lyrics were to those songs because I, up to that point, you know, I'd, I'd heard people talk about Dylan and obviously Dylan's great. And, um, you know, there's there's a ton of great writers out there. You know, people said Springsteen's a great writer. But when I heard Robert Johnson's lyrics, um, I, was, I was absolutely spellbound. And then from there, Sunhouse, uh, Lime Lemon Jefferson, those, those cats, just going into those lyrics because to me, they were like the Lord of the Rings. Whenever I was a kid, I, I looked at those lyrics and there was so much darkness in one side of it. But then the other side of it, there was, you know, these gospel songs that were there. So they'd have a record and they, one song would be killing somebody, uh, you know, some woman shot somebody, you know, go give me my shotgun or something like that. And then the, the next track you would have some gospel theme. And I thought, even that young, I recognize that as, you know, that's more real than say, a Christian rock record, or that's more real to me, at least than some guy that says he's a blues guy. That's, you know, from Minnesota that I don't know. It just, it just really felt real and honest to me. So those lyrics, I remember, uh, I remember just writing Robert, Robert Johnson lyrics down and just reading them and going through them. So, that was that was the kicker for me. When you talk about that period of music, you know the Delta Blues, the, you know the rawness of it. The one thing that really stands out is how these guys were performing and, and where the the music was coming from. The music was coming from a lot of poverty. You know, like a lot of those guys came from nothing, and all they had was their yeah. guitar, and all they had was their music. And you can really feel that in how they play and what they're singing about. And it's just, it's amazing. I don't know if there's ever been another form of music or genre of music that's been able to really have that be part of the music, the emotion that's behind it. I mean, there are some, but to have, I mean, it's, it, it pretty much drives the train with that type of music, right? I mean, it, it really is the essence of it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I think even looking back, you know, I, I, I'm kind of a student of that stuff and read a lot about it. And you, and you look at some of those guys that were 
I mean, they they basically at that time uh, took their life in their hands to play music. They were, you know, indentured servants or, you know, they were sharecroppers. They were, they had things and a lot of those guys had families to support and they had to, um, they had to play music. Even like in Robert Johnson's situation, if it meant uh, leaving, you know, a wife behind, kids behind or, um, you know, and a lot of them, you know, blind lemon Jeff, blind lemon Jefferson is, is he's blind and he, he, you know, it's a horrible childhood. His mother throws uh, lights open his eye, I think, and and, and blinds him. And, and these people, despite all the things that they should be doing, or despite the obstacles in their way, they're still just playing music. And there's not there's not money behind it. There's not anything else. And I I think I identify with that too because. I, it's been a record player in the back of my head ever since I was a little kid and I haven't, I've never been able to shut it off. There's been times in my life that I was like, okay, I'm going to go to law school or I'm going to uh, do this. I come up with these things, you know, I'm decided I'm going to do, but I, in the end I've come to a realization that I can't, I can't shut the music off. And I don't know if, I don't know if it's like that for every musician or artist, but maybe with the painter, it's, it's like that they continually, the images, but I don't know. I, I identify with that because I think no matter what uh, I went through or what my financial situation was, I don't, I don't think I could quit quit the love and want to play music, create music anyway. Yeah, I mean, that really is what the essence of it is, you know, of that type of music is the love of playing and the risk that they all took and what they went through to play and how it's still – revered even now right i mean it's still like you know if i pop in a you know a robert johnson record or elmore james record or whatever um i mean it sounds it still sounds like it was intended to sound it never has wavered through the test of time absolutely and the thing about it is 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 no other there's no other community or civilization or country or area of the world that produced that other than america to me those are American heroes. Those those guys should be celebrated. Those guys should be in in books. There would be no rock and roll without those guys. And I I think it's it's shameful that we have we celebrate some of the people that we do now for you know the music that they they create on laptops and stuff. And we don't teach our kids and uh, and hold some honor for those guys because that's it's it's the only true you know it's a really true American art form uh, the blues is and it's the foundation of, of everything that we listen to you know with the exception of a little bit of bluegrass and a little bit of jazz it all comes from the blues so right absolutely I, I agree 100% so the cold stairs Nashville Tennessee what is the history of the band how did you guys start well and really we're, we're in Evansville Indiana now at this point we've been up here for three or four years we uh we initially were from a small town in Kentucky and nobody knew where the town was. And we were a couple hours North of Nashville. People would ask, we'd say we're from Nashville. And we, we first started playing, um, we played Nashville quite a bit. So that kind of stuck, but we're, we're Hoosiers. Now we both married Indiana women and living up here in Indiana, but we, we knew each other, you know, in the, in the town that we grew up in the area that we grew up in, there were just not a whole lot of musicians, uh, it's a it's a rich area with history, 
um, of musicians. Um, the Everly Brothers come from our neck of the woods. Um, John Prine, uh, country uh, singer songwriter Chris Knight. There's some there's some guys that live, but you know they came up around 10 or 15 miles from where we're from. But um, there's you know there was two drummers, there's a couple different drummers in the area to choose from and kind of play with both of them. And um, at some point uh, early on, Brian came down and tried out for a band that I had, and at that time he he was just not good. Um, he was horrible. And then about five, six, maybe 10 years later, um, I saw him and he said, you know, hey, you remember me? I said, yeah, I remember you coming down and said something about getting together and jam. And at this point, when we got back together, he was a completely different drummer. And um, it kind of speaks volume to him because he he really had to work at it. But man, he put in the hours and just had really become a good drummer. So we, we put together a band uh, called Shelby. And um, at the time, I was um, dead set on getting a record deal. The band had some good songs. We did some showcases. We ended up winning the contest. We played in at the Hard Rock Cafe in uh, Indianapolis for a showcase and had some record labels come in. And um, they all passed. And I was really trying to do something. It was still a rock project, but it was a little bit trying to lean into the times. And uh, this is kind of after Soundgarden and Pearl Jam had done their thing. And, I, and I, 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 everybody was looking for the next thing. Um, but when that fell through, my daughter had just been, was just born. And I said, you know, I'm done. I'm, I'm just not going to play music anymore. I'll play music at home, whatever. I'm not going to be in a band anymore. And we went for three or four months. And then he called and, and uh, he goes, hey, man, I got to. We got a buddy that's wanting us to, just you and I, just get together and jam and open up for him. And that we were, I was bored enough then. I was like, yeah, okay. So I said, but we're not going to form a band. We're not going to get a bass player. And I'm just going to write a couple songs and then we'll just play them. He was okay. So, you know, it's like being that hungry. It had been a while since I'd written. And now I'm at a point where I don't have to write to try to impress anybody or to try doing that. I just wrote the most honest possible thing I could write. I was in the truck, uh, on the way home and Jesus brother James, I heard something and I can't remember what sparked that in my mind that I, that story about Jesus having a brother named James popped in my mind. And I thought, oh, we need a song. I wrote the whole song in my, in my head, um, probably three minutes and just kind of, went over it back and forth. A lot of times I'll write songs in my head where I'll, I'll have a line and I'll sing a line and then I'll add a second line and I'll sing two lines and then I'll add a third line. And it's instead of me writing down, it's a way for me to kind of just memorize it as I'm doing it. So I did that, came home, wrote that song down, had dinner, was out in the garage working on a motorcycle I was building at the time. And John, the song of John, in my mind, I wrote it down. So by the time we we got together and practiced for this gig, I had these I had two or three of these songs, and I came in and showed them to Brian, and he was like, "Dude, where 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 are these songs <laughs> coming from?" And I was like, "I, I don't know. I just just wrote them. Oh man, they're really good. You know, we should." I was like, "Nope, not not doing it. Not, not getting a bass player. Not playing. Not starting to play." 
But anyway, we put this show together, and because I didn't have a bass player, I wanted I didn't want it to be empty. I really liked the white stripes and the black keys at that time, but I hated that they didn't have a bass player because I missed that bottom end. So I had a brother that worked at Dell and was a real smart cat, and I was trying to figure out a way to make the guitar do the bass sounds when we played, and I kind of pseudo-figured it out when we played this gig, and I had about 10 amps on stage, and um, we were not expecting anybody to even like it. The guy that we opened for is kind of an Americana fellow. But when we kicked it all, when I kicked the entire rig in, everybody's mouth just kind of dropped. And I mean, it literally, looking back on it, it felt like it was going to, this was a little club called the Duck Inn, and it felt like the walls were caving, and it was so massive sounding. And we got done, and uh, there was a friend of ours that was there that had some contact in Nashville at the Hard Rock Cafe. He goes, listen, they're doing this contest down there. I'll give you $500 if you just get in it. Just do it. You know, I've never seen anything like this. You, you, you'll, you'll do good. So we got suckered into doing that. And then we did the Hard Rock Cafe contest. And, and despite everything, I, I was still adamant we would not win and no one would like us. And I think we were, we won out of like 1,500 fans that had entered. So, at that point, I was like, okay, <laughs> looks like we got a band again, you know. But it's weird because I had tried uh, so hard 10 years before. I mean, I, I can remember being on my knees. And just, Come on, just let just give me this one break and let me get this done. And I tried so hard and couldn't get it done. And then at the point that I, I just kind of surrendered all that, stopped trying, and only played exactly the music that I wanted to hear and that I really enjoyed. Um, that's when it. That's when we got successful. That's a great story, man. Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a, a rock and roll journey right there. Um, you know, sometimes you gotta stay, you know, get away from it before you can get back into it. And it sounds like that's what happened. Yeah. Yep. It, it took that to get to get my head right. I think. So after that contest, where did it go from there with the band? Like how how you know what developed after that. Well, like you said, we've been together since about 2010, but we really hadn't been a band that whole time. So this is probably closer to 2012 um, when we played the contest. And and prior to that, you know, we're just kind of, we just kind of got together and jammed or whatever. But when we when we won the contest, we immediately had um, we had uh, lawyers calling us. We had some labels interested. We had um, we did television appearance in Nashville. We did a couple TV appearances up here. So things just started going. Um, it's kind of a crazy story. Um, so we we decided, well, we need to do a record. We need to do some kind of music. And at that time, it, man, it had been a while since we'd been in the studio. And we didn't know. We, we thought we should do the record in Nashville, but didn't know who we should use. Um, we asked a couple friends for um, recommendations and we got a hold of this guy and we negotiated a day record with him. said, Hey, I, I told him, you know, I'm, I'm going to produce the record. I've got the songs. I know what I want to sound with. We just need a really competent engineer. And he said, okay, this is the cost for the day. I can't remember if it was 800 bucks or what it was, but uh, $500, maybe whatever it was. We go in and we record two days we record all the songs for Howlin' Wind, which was our first record. 
um, we paid the engineer uh, cash at the end of the day. Um, so we come back down to Nashville, and I'm going to do some vocals. And right before we get ready to go, the engineer calls and says, hey, man, I've got some you got to go to Los Angeles for about a week to do some work. I'm not going to be able to meet with you guys today. I'll give you a call whenever I get back. We'll schedule it. Okay. So a week goes by. Two weeks go by. Three weeks go by. And we've messaged this guy a couple times, and we're not getting a response. And finally, he gets back with us via a letter from a lawyer. And basically what he says is um, – there are some record companies that are trying to contact you, but I hold the information. Um, I went to Los Angeles to promote my engineering and I played your song for some record executives using it as a calling card for myself. Well, they are interested in talking with the band and signing them, signing you guys, but I'm not going to tell you who the labels are, the people are, Unless you pay me $30,000 or he had this agreement where he would be, he would produce part of the next record and this and that. That's extortion. So here I am at this point. Yeah, kind of is. And at this point I am, you know, I've, I've worked all my life to get to a point where I could just make enough money to pay the bills and really excited, you know, at, at, at the, both sides of the coin, I'm really excited that we might be able to make a record and have a record label. But the other side of the coin, I've got 15 songs and all this other stuff that I've built up that I, I can't even get. I can't even get the songs now because he's holding the songs. So we had, um, by that point, acquired a big-time lawyer. And we had some lawyers that were interested in the band. Um, and we had Kent Marcus, who... Um, was also Kings of Leon's lawyer. Um, this this engineer, which I'm not going to name, um, he had uh, a lawyer. And they, they started going back and forth on fighting about this. And I think it went for about six months. And finally, uh, you know, I just said, uh, that's it. You know, and I, 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 I was, um, we were both unbelievable unbelievably frustrated and even thinking about it now, it just seems crazy. But, uh, the lawyers kind of went back and forth and finally, uh, we got the record back and we put the record out and this is, but, but by this time we finally have gotten the information of the labels that were interested. And, uh, one of them was Hollywood records, which owned by Disney. Um, and a couple of the other labels that had contacted us, uh, mascot and some others, but they, you know, when we contacted them, they're like, well, we didn't think you were interested. We tried to reach out to you guys and, and you never contacted us back. And so we had to explain that situation. But so we get the record out and we start having some of the record labels fly in to see us perform. Uh, we do a sold out show here in Evansville and we had, uh, Matt from Hollywood there and you know he's he's saying well we're going to go back and I'm going to get this deal done I'm going to have you a deal you got a record deal and we're super excited and about you know how much longer after that it wasn't too long much longer we're in the process of getting this done and we played a show in Nashville at 12th and Porter and during the process of me setting up I noticed a lump underneath my right arm and 
was just kind of not feeling good in general. And um, so ended up being, I had surgery, taking it out, and ended up being cancer. And I had it in my lymph nodes underneath my right arm. So then I had to go back to the record companies and say, you know, especially Hollywood, say, hey, I'm going to be out for a good year trying to figure out what I'm going to do with this. And the doctors are saying that it's possible I have six months to live. And, you know, obviously they didn't, they're not going to sign somebody that they know is not going to put a second record out or, or maybe possibly not and, may, and definitely can't tour. So that was that. And I was lucky enough. I had a fan that was working at Vanderbilt. I was blessed enough that she, she came and, and I, w- I was looking at six weeks to get in to see this doctor and she made a call. And then before you knew it, I was in there two days later and got into it. Um, did about 18 months total off and on of uh, chemo and radiation and ended up, you know, beat, beating the cancer. But on the back end of that, and um, finally, you know, it, we were recording. So a lot of the songs on Mountain were recorded during that time. I was in the studio in Evansville with um, Greg and Brian, Greg Pierce, our engineer at the time, and I, I was broken out shoulders to ankles in hives from the chemo. And, um, so that that record will always be kind of special to me because, man, it, some of those songs were written in a, in a very dark place, but I was determined. And at that time, I thought, you know, if something happens to me and I die, I, I want to get as much music out as I can before something happens to me. And um, so we recorded and, and wrote a lot during that time period. But the backside of that, um, I help. And Mark Needham came into the picture. Um, after I got healthy, I had a friend that said, hey, you guys going to try to make a record? And I was like, yeah, I want to try to get a record. Again. I got these songs. And he said, well, I know this guy named Mark Needham. He signed the Killers. He signed Imagine Dragons. and These other bands. He said, would you mind if I share the music with him? And he sent the music out to him. And literally three, four hours later, I got an email from Mark. Um, wanting to talk. And so that, that got to that point in our, in our career when we started working with Mark. So that's probably 2014-15 at that point. That is a a journey, man. I mean, that's I mean, you tell me what's going on, maybe you know, I mean, you <laughs> yeah. tell me what the, you know, that is extortion what the guy tried to do to you first of all, and then, you know, with the health related issues that's uh that's a lot to to deal with in a, in a short period of time when you think about you know it's going to be 2020 the last decade has been a lot of ups and downs in a in a roller coaster for you guys i can i can just imagine it's been it's been it's been something else man and during that time um 2013 14 on the back end of me getting better from cancer and me being um you know, at that point, I, I, at, when I got sick, I was determined to live because I thought, hey, I get to this point and I've got this record deal in front of me and the bands, I'm finally getting this stuff done. And now they're telling me I, I may die. When I went in to do radiation, he said, well, we're going to have to fit your arm for this thing. It's going to go above your head. And the way that we're going to have to do this radiation, I can't guarantee that you're, number one, you may have lymphedemia. Number two, you may 
and I'd be able to use that right arm to strum your guitar. And I'd say, you can say whatever you want. There's, there's no way that I'm walking out of here and I can't play guitar. So he said, you know, I, you've, you've got to start radiation within five days or we're going we're to, this is going to get dangerous. So you got five days. Now I'd had surgery where they had basically taken my right arm, flipped it open, filleted it open. Uh, underneath my armpit. He said, you got five days to be able to stretch those muscles. You can reach your, your arm above your head. If you can do that, it's a possibility we can get this done radiation wise. And, and you retain, you know, some, some use your right arm. And by day three, I had, I was reaching all the way over my head, touching my left shoulder. I just was, I was absolutely committed to, to being able to stick around and do this. I just was not going out like that. So, um, but it cost us a lot, man. I had a, I had a divorce at the end of that. And I'm sure, you know, uh, everything we had gone through and the cancer and everything else probably played into part of that. Uh, part of that was a long time coming. Uh, Brian went through a divorce, had a really tough time during that time. There was always an excuse or a reason to quit. And, and stop playing. And we just were not going to. It just, it, you know, other than, you know, other than not taking care of my kids or becoming a criminal, I was not going to stop until we got to where we wanted to get. And um, we started doing the stuff with Mark Needham in L.A. and things started moving a little bit. And we started getting a little bit more attention and we started going, going again. And, if we had quit at the end of that, um, you know, we would have had these experiences in Los Angeles. We've done some things, but that would have been the end of it. We kept going a couple of years later, we experienced more success. And now we're at a point where, you know, we're, I'm really proud of our, our career right now. Not, not just for what we're doing at the moment, just, but just because we've made it through. So we've been together since 2010. We probably out of 2010, we have, about four years that we've really been able to work, um, you know, to work the project. Yeah. But you know, it's 2010, you, know, you guys have been around, you know, it, it was your start to now 2019, but you've led, a, you've lived a couple lives in that, in those nine years, man. That's, that's, uh, like I said, it's an incredible journey that you guys have taken upon that you've taken upon. And wow. I mean, that's, uh, that's perseverance. That's the definition of perseverance is, uh, is you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> and it kind of goes back to the thing we were talking about, the urban blues thing is I just, I don't know. I've never had any other, I never, I, ne- I, I never thought about quit. <laughs> you know, I, I guess there were times, you know, money gets really tight or things happen and you go, man, I got to do something else. It just lasts, you know, well, I have to, I have to think too that, you know, in, in the beginning of the conversation, you talked about leaving music, right? Because you couldn't catch a break. What you were doing, you were working extremely hard and you left, you know, you, you, you left the, you know, exit stage left, you left the theater and yeah. you know you, you come back and you write these honest songs, you know, like just what was in your head, what you were feeling that. And it breaks, right? I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it, it breaks in the sense that people want it and people like love the, love the, the vibe and the music of the band. 
and then here are yeah. these challenges that are put in place. It almost like it 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 becomes like your 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 soul to break through this to say, hey, you know what? I know I've got something good here because people want it, and I'm gonna do everything I can to break through and make it happen, and nothing's gonna stop me. Yeah, yeah, I think. Um and early on, especially when we first started playing out and playing these songs, I had, I've always been, um, you know, naturally talented. That's just, people say, do you work on this? Do you work on that? And I wish I could take credit from it for, for it all. But a lot of it is just, you know, God, God gives us all different talents. And that's, I, I was just blessed with the songwriting thing and some other things. But I, um, I had, had people that would say, you know, gosh, you're a good guitar player. Gosh, you're a good songwriter, whatever else, but never anything like what happened when we started playing with the cold stairs. Um, we would play shows and people would just, I don't know. It was just completely different. The way that they would come up and talk about the songs afterwards, the way that they would talk about the energy, um, of seeing us live or, um, it was it was a different thing, and I, and I knew at that point. I thought, well, I, I believed in it. I a hundred percent believed in it, and I thought I wasn't a big fan of a lot of the music out. And I thought we would really have a chance. If we could ever really get this heard, we would have a chance. My dad saw us once and and came up to me afterwards, and he said, you know, I don't I don't know anything about music, but I. I I know that these people were, you know, really moved by what you're doing right now. So I think this is this is your thing. You gotta keep going. So well, the song, was, that 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 helped us a lot. Yeah, I mean the new song Might as Well Die that was released last month. I heard that and I I mean when you hear a song that just moves you in a lot of different ways and you really connect. Because for me, I, I love music and I can appreciate a lot of different forms of music. But the one, the thing that connects with me, the music that connects with me is what I will always go to. And when I heard first heard that song, immediately connected. Just a well, well done song, an incredible song. I mean, if there is a song that can take you on a journey, that's the one for me by you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, that's uh that one wasn't supposed to be on the record. And I, uh, I was watching, uh, was watching a show called Yellowstone. Kevin Costner does. And, uh, kind of had that sentiment in my, in my mind. And, uh, you got some, you got to think about relationships and one of your relationships on that show and started thinking about my grandfather and the way that he loved my grandmother and you know a lot of older people when they really love each other and one of them dies you know the other one dies a few months afterwards a lot of times and the bond that love holds with us as far as living and um, I'm remarried five years now and you know as soon as my wife came in my head I was like oh all right here and I just went and grabbed a guitar and wrote it real quick probably two minutes you know to write the whole thing down and uh, I came back the next day and, and went down in the studio and just played the guitar and the vocal. And I thought, I wonder what it would sound like with drums. Now, at this point, we're not, I'm not even supposed to be writing. I just, you know, it just, this one had popped up. And so I thought I'd give it a shot. 
And I sent it over to Brian, and Brian put drums on it and sent it back. And I liked it. And I thought, you know, it's not doesn't really go at the time. It doesn't really go with stuff on the record. So I'll just I'll give it to my wife. Next time I'm in trouble with her, I'll give it to her <laughs> and say, you know, yeah, I wrote the song for you. But um, I put it up on Facebook for the fans to listen to, and we just got a lot of comments back. And our um, Tom Terry, who's uh, the head of Anti-Fragile that we're with now, he messaged him today. I saw this video and I saw the response and we had to put the song on the record. <laughs> so we'd already submitted the record to streaming and everything else and we uh, we got a quick mix of it and ended up putting it on the record. So that, that kind of shows it, it's never, not too calculated these days. It's just trying to, I think if you do say something honest, write something honest and sing about something that you believe in or that resonates truly with you, you know, we're all humans. We all, we're more alike than we are different and we share these sentiments in different ways. And it's like you said, when you hear something and it kind of connects to you, then that's what, that's what moves music. Despite what all the garbage is that's out there and, and, the way that they try to sell us plastic music and, and throw it in commercials and whatever else it, when you hear something that's honest, it, it will always end up shining through eventually. Absolutely. Absolutely. So present day, um, you guys just released the second EP of the ways album. I think that's uh, it's ways white. And that was released. Yep. What last week, right? October 3rd, I think. Yeah. A week or two ago. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about that. Like, how how was that process? How how did that? Um, what was the decision to kind of break it up into different EPs and make it like a complete album? Well, we had the the Mountain Record had done really well for us, and that that record was the first one we'd ever done with. The, we did a crowdfunding thing, and we we wanted to do the Ways Record, and I had in my mind this project where we would do a couple different genres and release them separately and put them all together. But I knew it would take some, some time and some money and whatever else. So we had the song sitting around for mountain from the period of time whenever I was sick. And I, we had a couple that I knew that the fans had liked. So we, we did a, we did a GoFundMe thing, a Kickstarter thing, and we raised the money in like two days. So that record came out and then kind of laid the groundwork uh, and made it possible for the Waze record. But in the meantime, Mountain was so successful that we had some record labels, uh, you know, make a pitch for the next record. And we ended up going with Anti-Fragile. Uh, Tom Sturrick, who had had, you know, he'd work at Cake and Nine Inch Nails, and he was manager of Lou Reed. And he had some really forward-thinking ideas, and, and I ran those ideas we had for Waze. He thought that was, you know, a great way to do it. So... Originally, what I wanted to do was do three EPs and really construct them as three different records, as if as if we were making three, you know, separate things and record them in different places and you know, and then put them together at the end. But what we ended up doing was I was looking for studios, a rock studio. I wanted to go to L.A. or go to New York and use a legendary studio that Hendrix and Jimmy Page and whoever else you know that we really like recorded in. But most of those most of the studios aren't there anymore. If they are there, they're making hip hop records. We just couldn't find a place that, you know, that really 
felt like that. And the blues thing too. So when I look at the blues EP, you know, there's, uh, there's Sam Phillips in Memphis, which we ended up going to the Muscle Shoals. There's a couple other places, but Muscle Shoals, uh, the Rival Sons had just done a record down there. And, um, Jack White, I guess the Black Keys were down there. So we, we wanted, we didn't want to copycat somebody. So we ended up doing the record at Sam Phillips in a kind of, um, justified it by, you know, looking at who had recorded there and there's great rock records that came out of there. There's great blues records that came out of there and there's great Americana stuff, uh, that's came out of there and is currently coming out of there. But we still kept the kind of, uh, the theory that we would do three EPs. So we went in and we recorded like a blues band trying to record blues songs like Headstone Blues on the new, new record. I did that with, uh, Helen Wolf's microphone. We used the amps and the mics that, that those records were recorded with as historically correct as we possibly could and then put our modern spin on it. And then we did the Rocks EP after we finished that out and kind of did the same thing. The acoustic stuff, I did a little bit of field recording with that and did it some different places, but ended up finishing it, in, uh, finishing it at my home studio here. And... Um, so, but the, the other idea to that was releasing, when you release a record to Spotify or iTunes these days, you say, you know, they ask the genre, you say rock. Well, they're going to listen to it and the rock curators are going to listen to that. And if it sounds like a rock record, you might have a possibility of, of getting a song in a playlist or something like that. But if they listen to a record like Mountain or they listen to uh, Waves, and they hear Killing Machine, or they hear uh, Thorns. Those don't sound like rock songs. They might they might work on a Zeppelin record, but these days they don't work on a record by you know I don't know some of these pop uh, rock bands. They, 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 all the songs are you know sound the same. They all have programmed drums. They don't. They just don't. They don't have the depth of that. So. What we wanted to do was by releasing them as three different EPs, we would release the blues EP as a blues EP. So it wouldn't be seen by the blues curators and possibly go on blues playlists. It would be able to, to go to Amazon to maybe chart the blues uh, charts, you know, and, and go to radio. And it would be seen as a blues EP. The rock EP would do the same as rock. And then the white EP, the acoustic stuff, our hope was that it would get seen more as singer-songwriter, folk groups and the end result would be that those three EPs would come out before the record and already be in different genres and playlists so that somebody that listened to our music in a blues playlist would go hey I really like this and then listen to the rest of the record and go well some of the rest of the record is rock and stuff but it's still it's still tied to the blues and I'm a new fan same with rock there are some rock people that, that don't want to hear if you say it's a blues record they don't want to listen to it you know they've got preconceived notions of what a blues record is and they you know they don't want to do that or folk so um that was my idea behind that tom thought it was a good idea too and so far it's been very fruitful for us because we've had uh we've had great success with um with the songs going out i was a fool came out last friday and it has been our best single release to date of anything that we've ever done and, and sleeping with lions off mountain records which at one time in 18 editorial playlist and, and I was a fool did better than that 
not playlist wise number, but first day, I think we did 10 or 12,000 streams really, really quick. And then it made funky, heavy bluesy playlist, which is a great blues playlist. And then it made only rock and breaking rock on iTunes, you know, so it, it bounced around in some different genres and, and did really well for us. So the blues, the next, uh, this Friday, the rest of the blues EP comes out and I'm hopeful and excited about it, that it, it further pushes us in the, the blues market so that we, is we really, we do really have our feet in both camps. You know, we, I love the acoustic stuff and the root stuff. We also, I'm, I'm, very much in love with the blues and always have been. And then the rock stuff, you know, we're just, we're children of the nineties and grew up on kind of hard rock stuff. So we're, we like all that. And I don't think there's any reason not to write and record all three. So I think about the first question I asked you and the answer was black dog by Led Zeppelin. And hearing you talk about the new music that's coming out, rock, blues, acoustic, I mean, that really is the essence of Zeppelin. You know, rock, they could they could kick your ass and, and, and with rock and roll. They could play the blues like nobody else, and then they could play a song like That's the Way or, or you know, Black oh, Country yeah. Woman, Bronyar Stomp, you know, that was acoustic or kind of folksy a little bit, and that was what made them so great is because they could do all three and put it into one. And, you know, I think, yeah. you know, I hear what you're saying about the new music that you're putting out, and I can't help but think, there's the Zeppelin connection that, that you had when you were young, when you, you know, got hooked on rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the template to emulate. Uh, that is definitely, you know, when you put those records on, they tell a story. They, they don't just do the same thing, the whole record. And I, I was talking about this the other day. I don't mind that that does that sometimes. Some of my favorite records, you know, back in black, the cults electric those records just rock from from day one to the end of the record uh track one to the end of the record they they just do their thing but i think in general for me if i don't have those other areas if i don't have some acoustic songs and some and some more bluesy stuff on the record i feel it's not the record that i personally want to listen to as much and so zeppelin i look at uh you know some other bands that I really love, Free, even Black Sabbath, you know, has some kind of way out stuff in, in the catalog and some of those records, you know, that they kind of go off into uh, some more interesting places than just every song sounding like Paranoid. So Soundgarden, other bands that I really love have all kind of done that template. I'm not doing anything new. I'm just trying to do, you know, trying to do it justice and do it you know, our spin on it. We're winding down 2019, 2020 is upon us. What, you know, in the next year are the plans for the cold stairs? Well, um, we are, uh, we just signed with a new agent. So Andrew, good friend at TKO is representing us now. And it's the first time we've had a, a real, real agent. I've been booking ever, ever since we started this thing by myself. So it's nice to have, that. So we've got some booking uh, stuff that's really exciting for 2020. We are uh, doing some shows uh, with a couple national acts with one fella in particular that's um, that I'm not supposed to announce yet, but w- that will be announced probably within the next month or so. But we're, we will definitely be in Europe in August 
and we'll be in France, Italy, Spain, and maybe some more shows over there. And then we will, we will be on the road more than we've ever been in 2020. In November of this year, we go to Los Angeles. We're going to spend a week out there. We're playing the Viper Room. We're playing uh, Las Vegas and doing some other shows. And then we're going to play a couple of regional shows before 2020. But when 2020 hits, we're going to, going to hit the ground running and do a lot more touring. We will do two more records next year at least. Uh, and I kind of have in mind what, what we want to do for those. So we're starting to start to work on that a little bit and write on that. Um, and just keep pushing. We we're at a point we're at the, we're definitely at the pinnacle of, you know, where we've been so far. This is the highest point that we've been, um, as far as just kind of notoriety and probably where we are writing, just playing our craft. Um, so the goal is just to just put our foot down and just, Hit it as hard as we can for the next year and just see see where next year leads us to. You know, funny story. Play in, in. I'm sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, we. I, I hope to do some more blues festivals and stuff next year, too. Uh, with Joe uh, Bonamassa putting that out on Instagram and some of the other things that's kind of helped us, it's opened up a little bit of a door for us to play more blues shows so mixed in with some of the rock festivals that i think we'll be doing hopefully we're gonna do some more blues stuff too yeah i did see that on your website with the with the comment that he made and that's that's pretty special right there it didn't hurt no didn't hurt absolutely not right very, yeah i think the funny was, thing very the funny thing for me when i discovered you guys and i was you know checking you guys out and i kept looking for a bass player i'm like I hear a bottom end. I'm like, it's only two guys. I'm like, two guys can't make that sound like that, you know. And and <laughs> and I'm like, I, I kept looking. I'm like, there's I'm like, I I looked on like live, you know, YouTube videos. I'm like, someone not get the bass player in the in the frame here, you know. And then I was able to obviously realize after a little bit of investigation, I'm like, there's two guys in this band, and it doesn't sound like two guys. It sounds like four, which is really cool. So yeah, we when we first started playing, we would have people ask, "Is there?" They would they would ask one or two things, especially other bands that we were playing with. They would say, oh, "You're running tracks?" No, we're not running any tracks. You got a auxiliary player off stage or behind the curtain, or whatever. No, we're not doing that either. I have a my rig is pretty complicated uh, to make to make it to make it work, but uh, I am. Uh, it's just us. But that, uh, yeah, the Joe thing certainly opened up some more doors, and we're very gracious to him. And so that that didn't that didn't help. And and really, you need four or five things, as as you've probably heard from other people. You know, you need four or five things to kind of align to really give you a good push. And we've had kind of all those things happen recently. Uh, so on a good run at the moment. Well, it's definitely deserved. You know. The music is rich. The music has a lot of depth to it. It's really awesome, uh, incredible songwriting, uh, songs that can connect with you. Um, I I can't say enough about you guys. And I was tagged by a guy, by a Twitter follower that I have, um, about checking you guys out. And I, and I couldn't stop listening to you guys for like two days, two, three days. It was just lo- love everything about you guys, love the music. I can't say enough. Well, thank you. And that, that, 
those uh, those people that are out there that are doing it, like the guy tagging you on Twitter, and I can't, I just can't. I am incredibly humbled by the fans that we have. I mean, the I've been fans of bands, and I guess like the Black Crows and Led Zeppelin. There's a couple bands that I was kind of super fans. We were able to meet uh, in the same room with Jimmy Page a couple years ago in Los Angeles, and got to sit up close and listen to him and Chris Cornell. Uh, that interview and there's a couple times that I've really you know I'm just really into the band but I the, our fans really take the time to share our music and tell other people about it and say hey you should listen to this or whatever else and I'm I am always you know super humbled by that but that is the driving wheel right now for for a lot of these a lot of people are, are just trying to shine a light on us and man that is that's amazing so I'm really glad that your friend you know, tag us. You know, the more that the more that people do that, that's how we we're getting out. We don't. It's not like it was 20 years ago where you had a record label that could put a bunch of ads in Rolling Stone. Nobody even reads print really anymore. So it's it's hard to get out there right now. There's a lot of static. But fans definitely. Yeah, it's it's can make it's, it happen. It's the word of mouth kind of. You know, like it used to happen years ago. You know, you hear a band and you have a cousin come in from another state across the country that has a band that's playing out there and it's got some music that they have and they start playing for it. And then you tell your friend about it and that's how it used yeah. to happen, you know, it, because it was very regionalized back in the day. Um, and now, yeah. you know, you've got social media, people telling, Hey, check this band out, check this band out. So, you know, that's kind of why I started the new music spotlight because there's so much great new music and I'm tired of hearing people say that new rock sucks because it doesn't new rock music is is really good there's a lot of great stuff out there and people just what's unique now is people have to go search for it and look for it where it's not yeah. it's not spoon-fed to you like on the radio like it used to be and uh yeah. more than happy to do these shows and more than happy to have people like you on here and hopefully you know resonates with with other fans and, and people discover you guys and and that's what's really that's what it's really all about Absolutely. Well, hey, man, we're going to end there. I, I appreciate the time, Chris. Chris Tapp from The Cold Stairs. Great interview, great journey in rock and roll. I appreciate you doing this once again. Thanks for coming on. It was it was a blast, and it was really interesting. Thank you so much, Jay. I appreciate you having me, and I appreciate what you're doing for rock and roll in general. So thank you. All right, man, thank you. Once again, this is Jay Scott. You're listening to The Hook, the ultimate rock community podcast. Everyone have a great day, and we'll talk again soon. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 